We're in week two of our series, Fatherhood, where we are looking at the fatherhood of God. And what we've been saying is that we want to recapture the fatherhood of God, revive it, renew it as central to our life as Christians and really life in general. And so we said that the first week, we just really want to have a lofty view of God as father and how stunning um, that statement actually is. This week, we're going to do a deeper dive into the implications and honestly, the failures of our earthly fathers. And so we're going to be talking about father wounds um, this week. And so just even now, like, like I know that may be a little bit tender for some of us. Um, and I just, my prayer is what we prayed earlier, but my prayer even now is that you wouldn't tune us out um, as we start to unpack some stuff that may be a little, little hurtful, um, that may uh, like produce some feelings that you wouldn't tune us out, but you would actually track where God could take us, which is deep, deep, deep healing from the woundedness that all of us have. The statement above statements that we want to just really consistently put in front of us is that the fatherhood of God is not a metaphor, it's an identity, which means God is not like a father, he is a father. He has eternally been father, that is who he is. And thus, he shapes the framework for how we understand fatherhood in general. Fatherhood, the fatherhood of God, is not a metaphor. It's an identity. It's not like him. It's who he is, and he sets the framework for fatherhood. Last week, we said there's some moves that we want to take place through the course of this series, some shifts that we say would start for some of us but continue for some others of us, and I just want to bring those out now. Um, Again, um, one of them is that we would move from fear-based to grace-based, that we wouldn't have a fear-oriented posture as we relate to God. The other is that we would move from selective obedience to sincere devotion, that we wouldn't pick and choose how we want to obey or relate to God, but our heart would be soft and warm to him as a father, and so we would move in light of that. The other is that we would and move from anxious toil to rested work. That's probably going to come out deeply as we talk about some um, wounds. And the last would be that we would move from passive participation to active pursuits, that we wouldn't just kick back and hope stuff happens to us, that we would get in the game and stay in the game. And in fact, Hebrews 12 brings that out. Let me say this, as I've been praying and just even talking and having conversation with different um, people and just even in our cultural moment, one thing I want to be sensitive of is that for some of us, this idea of father, that could, that could like be a trigger. It's like, well, you know, that's kind of like that patriarchal system of Christianity. Oh, you're one of those fundamentalists. Yeah, and it's like, well, no, um, God's identity as father isn't meant to be some weird, twisted form of abuse or oppression. Um, it's just stating who he is and how he wants to relate to us. And truth be told, our shared history tells us that there is something unique about the voice and role of a father. There's something unique about it. Like, you know when it's there. And you mourn when it's not. There is something unique about the voice of a father in our souls that when when dad says something, and it's not just because he has some bass in his voice, maybe it is, but when dad says something, you're like, okay, got to straighten. There's something unique, and that doesn't diminish the voice of a mother at all. Difference isn't diminishing. 
Difference is just difference, okay? Can we just affirm that, that just because something is different, it doesn't mean it's less than, it just means that it's different? The uniqueness of the voice of a father is tied to this truth that every part of our world, the world around us and the world inside us, is bent towards the existence of God. It screams God exists. And because it screams God exists, we have to say, how does God exist eternally as father? And so the uniqueness of the voice of a father really points back to the existence of God and God's unique voice. And what this unique father voice provides is pretty profound. That when you look at what a father gives that really only they could give is blessing is this comprehensive, robust, beautiful, firm type of blessing. And so even if you just track through the scriptures, which we're going to, again, we're going from Genesis all the way to Hebrews, what you see is this unique seeking of blessing from a father. Now, I would argue that when the scriptures talk about blessing, if we just go back to Genesis chapter 1, what we see is that the blessing of God really shows up of how our fathers are to bless us. And there's really three specific aspects of the unique blessing of God, thus the unique blessing of a father. Let me give it to you. The first one is presence. That's the unique aspect of the blessing of God. Presence is I love you and I'm with you. That's presence. We all, we all want that. We long for it. Uh, the, the, the second is affirmation. Like, I, I love you and you matter. That, that's affirmation. It's that you, you have profound significance. You, you are worth something. And so presence, I love you. I'm with you. Affirmation, I, like, I love you and you matter. And direction, I love you and here's what I want for and from you. That matters, for and from, because that's really direction. Direction is what you hope something to happen and what you want somebody to do to get there. Does that make sense? And so when you look at Genesis 1.27, that's what shows up. After God said, let there be, and there was, let there be, and it was, and he said, man, this is really, really good. This is excellent. This is a good thing. He says that he blesses humanity. He blesses mankind. And in that blessedness, be fruitful and multiply. I've made you in my image, and that I've made you in that my image, that Image-bearing blessing is one of affirmation and presence. Be fruitful and multiply is one of direction. It's the blessing of God, and it's the blessing that we look to our fathers for. That when our dads come into the picture and they're like, hey, I love you and I'm with you. I'm present. We got a little pep in our step. When it's I affirm you. I love you and you matter. We got a little smile on our face. And when it's direction, here's what I want for you. Here's the life I dream of you experiencing. And here's the way I see you going to get it. We get a little courageous. And we're like, all right, let's go. I'll run through a brick wall. It's the blessing of a father tied to his voice, what we're after We know it when it's there, and we mourn it when it's not. In fact, the fact that it's often not there is a testament to how precious it actually is. I'm not going to blitz you with stats regarding uh, the attack, the war 
on fatherhood. I'm not going to blitz you with that because you know that. But what I do hope to see or for us to see is that the war on fatherhood, the reality of the brokenness of fatherhood isn't something new to us. It is something that has existed since the beginning. And if we, if we got to see how it existed then, we also need to see what does it still do to us and then how do we recover. And so if you wanted to kind of look at big categories that shape the rest of our time, I just want to talk about the brokenness within fatherhood and what it does to us. And then we'll move to the blessing, recovering the blessing of God as father and the beautiful war that that is. Uh, Genesis, um, if, you, if you read with me, I'm going to start off in Genesis 12. We're just going to breeze through this. I'm just going to... Because the reality is that brokenness and fatherhood has always been here and it shows up in unique ways. Genesis 12, 11, um, it starts off the story of the call of Abraham um, and, and how God wants to relate to, through this one man to the rest of the world. And in the book of Genesis, really what you see is you see his family dynamics and man, they're dysfunctional. Like, so you, you see Abraham, you see his sons, and we're going to look at them and we're just going to pull out some truth for us, if that's fair. Genesis 12, 11 through 12 reads like this. When he, he being Abram, was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So he has this great idea, verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. That's fascinating. Now, the brokenness in fatherhood is tied to the brokenness in manhood. And the brokenness in manhood shows up in so many different ways, right? But one of the ways it shows up is in passivity. That we just abdicate responsibility. If, you know, last year we did a series on, on manhood, biblical manhood, and we said the cornerstones or the pillars of biblical manhood were men who lead courageously, they reject passivity, they accept responsibility, and they invest eternally. That that becomes the cornerstone of how you should grow as a man. And when, we, when that's not present, you enter into various degrees of brokenness, and that leads to various degrees of broken fathers. Notice what he just did here. He's like, look, you're fine, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And they're strong, I'm kind of weak. So tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. Any husbands in here? Anybody? Ain't no way. <laughs> that just can't happen. Now, some commentators will bring out the fact that, you know, he was going into an oppressive society, and so the fault doesn't lie on Abraham, it lies on the Egypt. And I get that, amen. But still. You know, if you just walk up on diamond the wrong way while I'm there, I'm going to die. Yeah, this is what it is. And I know Jesus, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so I'm good either way. Does that make sense? And so just because you know that you just don't do that. But he did because there's a trail of passivity in Abram's life, even though he is the father of faith, and man, we look to him, and man, he is a role model in so many ways. His one way, he's not. And what's fascinating is how his brokenness shows up in other people's brokenness, namely the woundedness of his children. So that was 
him in Genesis 12, notice his son, Genesis 26. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Where did he get that from? Obviously. Right? This is, this is simple. This isn't like, you know, right? This is reality that we see this brokenness continue and wounded as he is now responding and living in light of the brokenness in his father. That's a big deal. There's more. Genesis 25. <laughs> Passive, weird people. We all have them in our lives, and some of us are them. 25. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in his tent. So Isaac went on to have two sons, um, Esau and and Jacob. They were were twins, and they grew in the womb, and they were wrestling with each other. And there was this prophecy that the younger would would rule over the older. So, So Jacob would inherit the blessing and the promise of God, and he would have to champion God's plan throughout history, and Esau wouldn't. And so there was this tension in their, in their relationship. But, but what happens here in verse 28, I think is fascinating. It's this statement, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It's a very subtle statement. But man, are the implications profound. Have you ever, like, ear hustled your parents if you you're not the, if you're not an only child if you're only child praise god for you um and other things you have to wrestle with in terms of selfishness and pride praise god but <laughs> you know and codependency but if you're not an only child have you ever had to have you ever like ear hustled your parents talking about your children and they talk about one of them like more favorably than they talk about you have you ever heard that <laughs> yeah of course what did it do to you You know what it did to me? I love my dad. Me and my dad have a great relationship now. Um, in fact, he's going to come up at an illustration later. But I love him. But growing up, for whatever reason, I mean, I was a bad kid. I didn't know Jesus. I did some stuff. But my dad used to always say, Moochie, I wish you were like your older brother. Now, I had something in me since my dad said that, which was, okay. I will prove everybody wrong regardless of what they think of me because I know that you probably don't think well of me. So I have to measure up to somebody else. And so I'm going to prove myself to be this amazing person so people have to measure up to me because of what my dad said. And I love my dad. Probably shouldn't have said that to me, though. But you, you know that, right? If you're not an only child, when, when there's, it seems like some preferential treatment towards your sibling... It creates something in your heart, a void there. Now, if we track the rest of Jacob's story, what we see is that Jacob is marked by trying to wrestle blessing from favor from other people. Whether it's his father-in-law, whether it's Esau having a, like, you know, 
twist him and lie and, and sneak around and try to steal the blessing from him, or whether it's God himself, which leads to this moment in Genesis 32, where he's actually wrestling with God. Jacob is trying to wrestle blessing from the hands of everybody else because he didn't receive the blessing of his father. That's a big deal. It's woundedness. And Jacob, not only is he now having this limp, if you will, that shows up in his relationships, Jacob is still a byproduct of the passivity of his fathers. Read with me. Genesis 34 is one of the saddest stories in the Bible. I appreciate the fact that the scriptures don't hide people's brokenness. I like that. Because they're relatable, they're real, they are a window and a mirror into the heart of humanity. You see yourself when you read the Bible. You see the world around us when we read the Bible. When you see Genesis 34, you see where we are in our culture and moment. Genesis 34 reads like this. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, let me pause and let me explain how we got here. So Jacob went around to have 12 sons and some daughters. We don't know all the names of his daughters, but we know one of them, Dinah. Now, she was attractive. I guess it was genetics, all right? Her mom and her grandma. And so she was attractive. And so she was in this town, and this, the men of this town saw her, and there was this, this leader of this town, and he was like, man, I want her. So he took her, and he raped her. And he was so infatuated with her, he was like, man, I don't want to just rape you. I want to make you my wife. That is wicked. That is wrong. It is never justified in the Bible. It's just identified. It's there. It happens because people actually do wicked stuff like that. And so her brothers had this great idea. Um, I probably would have been one of these brothers, maybe Levi. But her brothers had this great idea. So what they did was they're like, man, you can't do that to our sister. So... They said to this guy, they were like, man, we, this, this man is like, I really want your, your sister as my wife. And they're like, man, look, you're uncircumcised guy. So you, we're, we're Hebrew people, and so we have circumcision. So here's what needs to happen. If you really want to, to have our sister, then every male in the town needs to be circumcised. Okay, so, so circumcision is this thing that happens um, with males, and praise God. Does that make And so, so what happened was all the males of the town got snipped. And the Bible says, this is why I love the scriptures, while they were still sore. That's like the understatement of all time. Like, while they were sore, these two brothers came in and killed every guy in the town. They slaughtered all the men, killed them all, no exceptions. As this is happening, Jacob is silent whole time, whole time. The first time Jacob, in the scriptures, opens his mouth in this story is in this moment, and this is what he says. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. What? The first time this father, who, who God renamed Israel, striven with God and man and prevailed, 
the first time this father opens his mouth after such a tragedy is to say this? That's passivity. That's a rejection of responsibility. That is wicked. I cannot imagine his daughter hearing this. I, I can't. I try not to picture it. But here's how his sons responded. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The passivity continued, but not just the passivity and the brokenness. Israel, Jacob, had sons, 12 of them. And notice, notice Genesis 37, verses 3 through 4. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. That sounds familiar. Right? Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Do you see what's happening here? And that wound, that void continue and it affected the way that he engaged with his sons and it produced woundedness in them. You know what's fascinating? That even in the midst of how broken of a man Israel was, his son still wanted blessing from him. So there's, there's one of his son, his oldest son, Reuben, um, and in Genesis 35, 22, Um, Reuben did something crazy. It's on the screen. It says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Belihah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And so so essentially, Reuben slept with his father's concubine, stepmother situation. It was weird. And Israel heard of it. And you know what that created? That created tension in that relationship. Yeah, is like Reuben knowing that his dad really preferred Joseph, he still wanted his dad's blessing. And so when his brothers, Joseph's brothers, created this plan, if you know the story of Joseph, where they're like, yeah, like, we're, we need to kill this dude. Because he is just, he is walking around, he's having these dreams, he thinks he's better than us. We need to 86 this guy and get rid of him. And then Reuben said, said this, 37, 22, he said, shed no blood. Throw him into a pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So, so Reuben, while the rest of his brothers are like, yo, we need, to, we need to take him out. Reuben's like, no, 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 don't do that. Shed no blood. Just throw him into the pit. And this is his reasoning, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So he could come in as the rider on the right horse. Dad, look what I did. They wanted to. But I stopped them, and I saved your favorite. Will you like me a little bit more too? I love this. Am I going to cry? No. It's just re- it's real life. It's real life. It's all of these broken people shaping other people. It's brokenness. This is the brokenness of fatherhood that is in our history. This is the brokenness of fatherhood that all of us have. Every single one of us are wounded children this side of eternity. No one escapes 
this side of eternity without being wounded by their father. Now, that could be what they did or didn't do. And they could be great or they could be garbage. But you got to put a little flair in it. You know? But it doesn't really matter because they have a central role in your life, in my life. And so they affect us in ways no one else can. Um, Stephen Colbert, he had this um, book, The Father Factor, where he talked about essentially different fatherhood styles. Um, Let me just run through them, and I just want to see if this may be your dad, because your dad may not be like Jacob or Israel in what they did or kind of who they are, but let me see if you find your dad in this space. One type is the super achiever. This, this father is never really satisfied. No matter what you did, it was never good enough. Academics, arts, sports, even if you are the best at what you do, it still wasn't good enough to him. When we see God through this lens, you know what? We see God is never satisfied. So what happens is the wound in light of this brokenness is we become workaholics. You don't know how to rest. You don't take breaks because you want the blessing of your father, presence, affirmation, and direction. The other is the time bomb, always angry. You never know why or when. Your dad would just explode. It's like, why why are you angry? There's often emotional devastation all over the place. They, They may be cruel, physical abuse, mental abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, Our children come to hate this dad. You know what happens if this is kind of the environment that you grew up with as a father? You relate to God by constantly hiding your deficiencies. I can't really show God my weakness or my failures because he'll crush me. Because God is just like my earthly father, always angry, never happy, never pleased. There's a third type passive. We've seen now that, right? Jacob, all of them. But, but the, in terms of passive, they often can't express emotion. The television dad of the 1950s, like Archie's bunker, they're steady, they're calm, hardworking. Good guys, except for him, he was racist. Good guys who never do anything harmful, uh, he was, to themselves or others. Uh, they just weren't emotionally there because that's what mom does. Mom kind of does the emotional thing, right? Awkward huggy moments. Have you ever tried to like, like, are we doing a church side hug, dad? What are we doing? Are you kissing me on the forehead, on the cheek? What's happening, right? His dad might love you, but they don't really say it much, if at all. You know what happens if this is your father? One, when you relate to God, it's really hard to see God's love, to experience and feel God's love. You, you could talk about God's wrath very well. How God, he's just, he must punish sin. But when you start to hear generosity and goodness, you're like, what is that? And, and what happens is that that person, that, that wound is one where we become emotionally immature, unable to understand where our emotions come from, what they do to us, and how we really feel on a day-to-day basis. Or there's the absent father, seldom there. That's the easy one, right? But you know what tends to happen with these people? These people more than others, they create this 
I will be for others what my father never was for me. Ever said that to yourself? If you're a man in here, right? Creates codependency. So my dad was never there, so I will cling to whatever male figure I can or whoever is around me. Codependency issues. And you know how we relate to God in light of that? We actually appreciate a God who's over there. You stay over there, God, and let me do my thing right here. There's another type that um, is, quote, unquote, the one people say that we should achieve. I will push against this a little bit, but it's the compassionate mentor, one who is fully engaged. While we all need this, they correct us in love. They express their love freely. And it's there when it matters. It's who we need, right? But they also can wound us. Um, I like Hamilton, um, the play. Not necessarily a person, but um, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I don't know if you remember Hamilton. It was big. It came to Miami. I couldn't afford the tickets, but it was here. Wish I could have. Um, but it's the story of Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Um, and, and, you know, how Aaron Burr ultimately killed Hamilton. I don't know. So ruin that story for you. But um, there's all of these songs. And one of the songs is Wait For It. It's one of my, yes, yes, yes. It's one of my favorite songs in the entire musical. First of all, I just love musicals, but it's one of my favorite songs in the entire musical. And it actually tells about Aaron Burr's life, stuff I didn't realize. I was like, really? Like, your dad was like, your great-great-grandfather was like, Jonathan, Ed, really? What? But there's this one um, part of that song where he, he says this, if I could read it, not sing it. Uh, I didn't get that from my dad. Uh, my mother was a, a genius genius. Uh, my father commanded respect. Respect. When they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. But you see that part? It's like, like when they died, they left no instructions, just a legacy to protect. Some of us had some really awesome deaths. And we're like, we have some really big shoes to fill. And so now our life is like, man, I got to measure up to the greatness which was my dad. Do you see how even if your dad is garbage or great, there's some brokenness that happens in you? What do we do with that? Did you see yourself in that? What do we do with that? Here's what we can't do. We can't continue in a life where we just blame. Because here's what you need to know about you and me. Our past may explain us, but it never excuses us. So Jeremiah, you have this beautiful picture in Jeremiah 31 where where God is talking about through Jeremiah how he's going to turn sorrow into joy. And at the end, he makes this statement that shows up in Ezekiel as well. And essentially, it's a statement that was a common saying around that time. And here's what the statement was. The statement was this, that... Let me, let me read it. In those days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So essentially, the common statement or the common saying was, you, you're just like your daddy. What your daddy did is going to happen to you. You are going to bear the weight or the responsibility of what your past had. Your father's sins will show up in your present. And you're going to bear it. And what he says is like, look, there's some truth to that. 
But what he's going to say is, after this is, no, 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 that saying is gone. In fact, a new saying will happen that the soul that sins will die. In other words, every single human is responsible for their own soul. So you cannot put the weight of someone else's failures as an excuse for why you aren't where you should be. And that's hard. That's very hard. Because it is so easy to just be like, if you did it, I wouldn't be. And there's some truth there. But our past may explain us. It never excuses us. Furthermore, we may not be able to change our past, but it doesn't have to control our present or hold hostage our future. And when we enter into this weird, we will acknowledge the brokenness of our fathers in our past, but we'll just kind of use that as ammunition to be vindic- like, like vindictive and, and vengeful or like as some type of vindication for why we are the way we are. What we're saying is that the past is holding our present and future hostage. And God looks at it and says, no. Everyone everywhere for all time will experience brokenness and woundedness often associated with their father, but everyone everywhere is invited to heal by receiving God as a heavenly father our earthly fathers could never be. This is Hebrews 12. So in all of Hebrews, it's a very beautiful book. Um, I'm, I'm going to start to land. I'm going to close a little bit. It's a very beautiful book. It points to the supremacy and superiority of Jesus. And so that's why the beginning says, listen, he has a more excellent name than the angels, a more excellent name than Moses. And it talks about the supremacy and the superiority of the work of Jesus, the gospel, that this Savior would die for and instead of humans and create access to this Father. That was last week. This generous, good, free, accessible, just father access through Jesus. And then he would say that, that because we have this glorious access through Jesus, let's not just stay where we are. But let us run and approach the throne with grace and confidence and boldness. And so you have this consistent push through Hebrews to continue and to pursue Jesus, to endure for Jesus, to look to Jesus because he's superior and he's better. And then you get to Hebrews 12. After Hebrews 11, like created this glorious picture of people who were faithful, the hall of faith, people because of their faith who received beautiful things, stopped the mouths of lions, and some of them were sawn in two, which means for their faith, they died. After painting this glorious, beautiful picture, he says, therefore, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, in light of this great hall that points to the faithfulness of God, because their stories of faith were really signposts to God's faithfulness. Therefore, in light of this cloud of witnesses, let us cast off every weight and sin that so easily entangles us, creating a 
distinguishing mark between what is just a weight, which means it's not sinful, and what is sinful. He says, cast them both off. Some of the brokenness in our lives because of our fathers isn't actually sin. It's just weight. We need to cast it off. He says, in light of that, therefore, lay aside every weight and sin and let us run the race set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who himself endured. And then he goes on to talk about this dynamic of enduring and, not, and resistant temptation. But then in his talking about this resistant of temptation, he starts to say stuff about God that's pretty rich and beautiful. He says that, yo, don't despise the discipline of God. And when we hear that, we always hear correction. Do you know why? Because that's usually how our earthly fathers discipline us. Time out and taps. And I get it. I got three kids. Let me tell you something. Timeouts and taps work, all right? And so, but discipline is more than correction. It's also instruction. Discipline is formation through correction and instruction. When you think discipline, you need to think, we need to think what someone is trying to form in us. And so he says, the discipline of God means God is trying to form something in us. What is God trying to form in us? Treating us as sons, sons, sonship. Identity. God is trying to form in us an identity of son, daughter, whereby we receive him as father. And he says, yeah, don't treat that lightly. <laughs> Consider him who endured so that you could experience that. The healing our hearts long for the blessing we still look for is tied to experiencing God as Father. And hear me, there are tremendous complexities to every one of our stories. But that doesn't mean that we need to have a complex solution. The solution is simple, it's just supernatural, and it's difficult. To receive God as Father through his Son, Jesus, is supernatural and hard. Because everything in me says, I need to work for that. Everything in me says there's some standard that I won't meet. Now you're going to leave me because I have a past history that proves that. And God says, no, no, no. You need to erase being captive to your past and embrace what I could do now for and through you as a father. And then he gives us this beautiful picture. This is how we close. This beautiful picture of how he relates to his sons in Jesus. Man, I go to this weekly. Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus, say it regularly here at the church because we need it. That what you have is 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, God's not saying a word. And the first time in over 400 years that God breaks the silence and speaks, do you know what he says? Jesus being baptized, spirit of God descending on him. And the sky breaks open and the father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Before Matthew 4, where, where God leads him through the spirit, before the cross, he looks at Jesus, he says, there is this glorious, beautiful pleasure I have with you because of who you are. And it causes me to move towards you and blessing, and faith, presence, affirmation, and direction. 
That's how God sees Jesus. That's how God relates to Jesus. And that's how God sees us if we know Jesus. And that's how God wants to relate to us. So, in closing, here's some determinations that I think we need to make that I've, I'm striving to make and I want to lay before us to make the determinations and they're also aspirations that I think will help us to add some structure or weight to the simplicity of receiving God as Father as a primary and, dare I say, only way to really heal deeply from our Father wounds. Um, first determination is this. I determine to build my life around the blessing of God as Father that the blessing of God as Father is that he loves me, right? And he's with me, presence. He loves me and I matter, affirmation. He loves me and here's what he wants for and from me, direction. To resist trying to fix overnight what was created over time. I determine to resist trying to fix overnight what was created over time. My dad said that to me when I was like 11. I'm 34 and I'm still like, man, I got this proof thing in me, yeah? And it's not going to go away tomorrow. It's probably going to be with me until I'm 74. If God would be so gracious as to give me that many more years. I determine to resist replacing my earthly father with anyone other than my heavenly father. Okay? You're just, you're just shifting pieces of broken people. You've got to put God back in his place. I determine to run the race in front of me. I love my dad, but when he said that, there was some part of me that was like, man, maybe I do need to be like my older brother. My older brother is way different than me. He's not as cool. He's not as athletic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but, but does that make sense? Like, I would have failed running his race. He's, he's, he's super smart. He's like a genius. I, I, amen. Run the race in front of me. I determined that. And I determined, you see, I, I, deter, I determined to remember the blessing. It starts with blessing and it ends with blessing. To remember the blessing. So not just to build my life around it, but to remember it regularly. Presence, affirmation, direction. Would you determine that today? It'll be on social. This is why we said you need to follow us during the life of this series so that we could contemplate these things, we could praise God for these things, and we could pray about these things because there's no singular moment that's going to free us from all of it. But it's consistent moments where we are engaging and receiving God as Father, in that spirit, let's pray.